Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. The election day for September the 14th. Never thought you'd hear me say that, would you? Normally that's along about March or June or November, but it's a special time, so a special election for special people in a special state. Uh, seriously, uh, you've got uh, T-minus two hours, 55 minutes before the polls officially close here in California. Though if you've already mailed your ballot, ironically, they'll be opening and counting those for 72 hours after the election. And uh, just so that everybody takes a deep breath, be mindful that the Secretary of State's office has 38 days, 38 days to certify the election. And uh, the way these things usually go, certainly in a COVID world where we're having some folks vote in person, some folks vote via mail, and the time that it takes, obviously there are multiple steps. If you vote in person, you know you're done. You slip it through the machine. Your votes gets counted. Well, when it comes to mail-in ballots, somebody has to sit there, open everyone, allegedly verify the signature, then process it. So it's far more time-consuming. If you wind up with significantly more folks voting by mail than in person. I I guess all I'm saying is if you think by 8.01 tonight you're going to know the fate of Gavin Newsom, uh, I'll suggest to you that Gavin Newsom will not know Gavin Newsom's fate for probably some days to come. But we'll keep you posted throughout the program. A little bit later on tonight, constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus I'm sorry, constitutional lawyer Bob Zadek. There are all kinds of lawyers here. We're, we're just <laughs> we've got lawyers right and left. Bob Zadek's going to join us. We'll talk a bit about the um, California re- recall election and um, the uniqueness of it all. We'll get to that conversation coming up a little bit later on. Speaking of constitutional lawyers, like that segue, one of my favorites joins us now. He is the president of the Pacific Justice Institute, founder of SAME, a constitutional lawyer in his own right. Brad Dacus, as always, great to have you with us. Oh, it's great to have the program. Thank you. Well, it's going to be, uh, you know, an interesting season ahead, uh, not least of which as uh, we see uh, somewhat of a return to normalcy. Kids are back into school now. Events are taking place in a public fashion. And then, of course, you've got the president of the United States um, mandating vaccines. Not quite sure how he's going to do that or let alone um, make sure that the vaccines are being taken, and then how do you enforce that? How do you verify it all? We've already got word that there have been people trying to sell uh, so-called phony vaccination uh, cards on the black market, which seems to be a bit ridiculous to me. Uh, is there any sense, and I, and, I, and I know that part of the goal here is to reach herd immunity, uh, uh, immunity to, to reduce the number of new cases, to take the strain off the hospitals, but for the government to suddenly get into uh, mass uh, health care vaccination business uh, seems to me that it's going to go about as smoothly as uh, Medicare. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, it's going to be very problematic uh, for the Biden administration to try to uh, to push out, for example, their recent uh, mandate uh, under OSHA uh, for their, their uh, for businesses with over 100 employees to have to require vaccinations. You know, allegedly they're going to allow for religious or medical exemptions. Uh, 
Um, but it's still it's still up in the air, and uh, we at Pacific Justice Institute have been very proactive on this and have prepared something for our website uh, for people for businesses on our website to instruct them on how to uh, to basically get around uh, what is uh, likely to come down on a federal level to a large number of businesses and employers across America. So let me ask you a question. If, if employers across America have a difficult time with basic things related to compliance, like the I, I-9, for example, um, trying to verify whether or not somebody actually has a uh, work permit or a green card or uh, a citizenship or residency to, to be able to hold a job, and we know that the ability to sort of use the private sector to police all of that has been hit and miss, largely quite miss. Where is the thinking here? What's the mechanism? What's the expectation? Are employers now suddenly going to have to become health police? Uh, yeah, that's basically what the Biden administration would like to see happen. However, uh, in, uh, right now, with we things are and the way we expect it to come out, in the end of the day, it's going to be up to the employer. And uh, the employer uh, is the one who basically decides whether or not a religious exemption or medical exemption is going to be respected and granted. And if an employer, you know, announces to all the employees, um, if you want a religious exemption, medical exemption, put it in writing, send it to me, you know, give it to me, sign, and we'll review it. And if the employer wants to accept every single one of them, uh, that's up to the employer. And so they really do have a lot more freedom, so far at least. Uh, but we're going to have to see what the final rules are for Moshe and see if we're going to need to do some more fine-tuning it. Well, that, 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 let me interrupt you, Counselor. That, that seems to be terribly, uh, what's the term I'm looking for, unfair. Uh, if it ultimately is left up to the employer, so does that set up a scenario where employer A says, no, no, we're, we're going to maintain a strict policy. Employer B says, yeah, we'll allow some religious exemptions, but not everyone that comes and wants one is going to get it. And and employer C says, hey, we don't care. It's all about freedom and liberty. And whether or not you're vaccinated, we could care less. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that you're just setting up a scenario that could potentially be rife with lawsuits in Invasion of right. privacy, and uh, and I'm trying to figure out where the HIPAA laws sit in all of this. You know, when we when we saw the the um, the healthcare initiative um, passed under Obama. One of the complaints that I had at the time was this notion of setting up the ability for corporations to uh, force you to comply with certain um, uh, programs that was all allegedly related to better health, reducing uh, bad uh, living habits, so on and so forth, to kind of reduce your, your health risk, which ultimately is a good goal. But then when you have to turn over to your employer a lot of inside information, now they say, well, it's voluntary, yes. But if you don't volunteer the information, there are other penalties involved. And I wonder, how did they manage to incorporate that into the ACA and not get a big slap on the wrist in terms of HIPAA violations? And yet it's seemingly, Counselor, here we go again. I mean, who has a right to ask me whether or not I'm I'm vaccinated, and particularly when it comes to an employer? Yeah, as far as HIPAA goes, HIPAA is actually very narrow in restricting doctors and hospitals. That said, uh, we at Pacific Justice Institute uh, just filed. Um, we haven't put out the press release yet. It'll probably come out tomorrow morning. Uh, we just filed a major lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles, the LAPD, 
and the, the mayor, Garcetti, of L.A., uh, on behalf of police officers uh, who have been uh, prevented from uh, being able to even have their religious exemption reviewed. There was just a, a short 72-hour window, and that was it. Uh, then they've been, you know, threatened by, uh, you know, superiors. Um, and then we, in our lawsuit, we, we bring out the fact that this arguably does uh, violate uh, fundamental privacy rights under uh, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, as well as uh, Article 1, Section 1 of the California Constitution. And we also have a number of other uh, claims as well. So we, we have a very strong lawsuit. We just filed it, and uh, we're going to um, hopefully have a, a great, uh, strong pushback uh, for the, uh, not only still in California, but also for others across the country. Now, question. The principal mandate here, of course, as handed down, is coming from the Biden administration, so that's at the federal level. Uh, is there anything to suggest that the states can't impose their own mandates? And I asked that question because before coming on the air here today, I thought, well, um, probably the largest group that is subject to vaccinations in our country are children. And in California, in order to attend public schools um, to uh, to gain interest, I, I'm assuming around the age of five or uh, six years old, when a child enters into kindergarten, they must be vaccinated for polio, diphtheria, tetanus, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B, and chickenpox. So if the state can compel parents to have their children vaccinated, uh, what is to prevent the state from kind of flipping the narrative here? Okay, it's out of bounds at the federal level, but could the state implement something similar to what Biden is asking for? Uh, they could, but our lawsuit uh, deals with it both federally as well as uh, as a matter of state state constitution, the California Fair Employment and Housing Act. Um, we've got it. it, it it's going to be binding on the state and the federal uh, as a matter of case law. Um, and also with regards to childhood vaccines, many don't realize this, but uh, in 19, I think it was 2018, uh, or 2019, there was a law passed, you know, allowing, you know, schools to require these vaccine vaccinations, but it said any new vaccinations must accommodate for religious um, exemptions, religious convictions, and this is a new vaccine. This, this COVID vaccine is a new vaccine. Schools must accommodate parents who have religious convictions uh, with regards to the vaccines and not and not require it. And we're willing to go to court uh, for every single child and every parent in California where that's necessary. Could the courts come back and counter and say that, well, practically speaking, this isn't uh, this isn't a religious exemption because no religion is teaching uh, an anti-vaccine position? I mean, what 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 kind of potential arguments are you anticipating for the the state yeah. or the feds to 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 counter with? Well, we've already produced a memo that people can download uh, from our website that actually rebuts that completely and says, no, legally, you do, do not have to cite a church or denomination or doctrine. It's just your personal, sincere convictions. And we talk all about how an employee or a student can lay that out very solidly and effectively uh, via our website, pji.org, under Vaccine Mandate Resources. All right, pji.org. Brad Dacus, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. We appreciate the update. A lot more to come, including an update for you right now on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, it's election day here in California, which I know seems to be a very awkward remark, 
considering the fact that it's mid-September. But uh, here we are, nevertheless, as voters are deciding whether or not to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. John Libertini has more from the state capitol. Voter interest spiked after conservative radio talk show host Larry Elder joined the race. In a state dominated by Democrats, supporters of Governor Gavin Newsom rallied. By noon, 8.7 million votes had been recorded, likely mail-in ballots, 4.5 million from Democrats, 2.2 from Republicans, a million more from independents, and declined to state. But party has little to do with the widespread criticism leveled at Newsom's handling of the pandemic, keeping kids home from school, and shutting down businesses. Elder has been compared to a clone of Donald Trump. Elder says he has lawyers ready to investigate what he calls any shenanigans. John Lubertini, NBC News Radio. California perhaps not solo in the fact that we provide a mechanism to recall a governor, but unique in that we've done this with much eagerness at least uh, twice within recent memory. Last time around, of course, with uh, Governor Gray Davis about 19, 20 years ago, ultimately led to uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger becoming governor of the state of California. Um, There are some peculiarities, though, to the methodology in which all of this takes place, meaning that it only requires 50 plus one, a simple majority, for Governor Gavin Newsom to be recalled. But once that question Number one is answered yes, and it meets that majority threshold of 50 plus one. Then it gets a little bit convoluted. Let's get some insights now as we're joined by syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, and lawyer Bob Zadek. Bob's the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in America today, conveniently called The Bob Zadek Show, heard locally in the Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Bob, as always, great to have you with us. And uh, your thoughts about this process? Uh, it, it, it seems to kind of be, a, I, I, I guess, a takeoff on, on, on rank-choice voting in that while it takes a majority to recall Gavin Newsom, it doesn't take a majority to replace him. In other words, whoever would come in as the next governor, if a majority of Californians say yes to question number one, doesn't require 50 percent of the vote. Is, is that, in your opinion, a, a, an oddity? No. Well, uh, is it odd? Everything in California politics certainly qualifies as an oddity. <laughs> um, so you raise a very low bar. And by the way, you commented on the convenient name of my show. Um, of course, you might say it's the eponymous Bob Zadig show, uh, which it is, uh, no coincidence. But back to the matter at hand. Um, I don't find it to be an, any more of an oddity than anything else in politics. Uh, and Craig, how could it be any other way? Let us assume that after 51% uh, vote uh, in favor of the recall against the, go- the governor, of course. And if you said, then the next governor has to have 51%, we would probably go forever and not have a governor. Then what would happen? Would you have um, next in line um, be, uh, be governor? That's kind of silly because he or she got no votes. Well, or would it be there's no governor? That would be kind of nice, actually, but it would be inconvenient, to say the least. Or would it be that after Newsom loses with 51%, if nobody else gets 51% to replace him, then he stays in office? That would be bizarre. So I don't even know an alternative. And ranked choice voting is, of course, 
too new to really embrace. It has advantages and disadvantages. I don't know that I'm crazy about it. So, no, I don't find it to be strange. Um, after all, Clinton in 1992 um, got about 42 or 43 percent of the popular vote. Uh, Ross Perot was a third-party candidate. So Clinton was elected in his first term but did not represent a majority of the people. So I don't find that to be pretty weird. And looking at the bigger picture, so uh, a concept that I have really had a good time thinking about and hope we get a chance to talk about tonight is whether or not the fact of a recall um, really produces better governance governance by the governor. I think recall should be a piece of cake. Um, I'll explain that if we get into a dialogue on that. But as to your direct question, no, I don't find it to be especially weird. I kind of like it. Um, uh, I like the fact that I get to pick among 20-odd or 30-odd candidates. It's kind of nice. And we can't, it can't produce a worse governor than, than majority rule. So how bad can it be, Craig? Well, uh, here's potentially how bad. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to tip my hand here. And, you know, full disclosure, um, Larry Elder is a colleague. While he's not on this radio station, he is uh, a, a broadcast colleague in that you and he and I work for the same company. And I think of the group of, I think it's a total of 47 names on the ballot, and there may be a half a dozen or so that uh, may potentially become write-in candidates. But let's work with 47 for the moment. Uh, of that group, he seems to be leading the field and probably uh, the best qualified of them all, uh, You know, setting aside personal opinions with regards to uh, some folks that ran that I think was simply for a publicity stunt, not to mention Jenner's name, uh, John Cox, uh, you know, probably someone needs to to say, John, go run for city council first, because the high-level jobs that you're trying to get uh, so far has been met with a resounding uh, no vote from voters. So that said, I guess the potential concern here, Bob, is with a field of 47 candidates, you could wind up with someone who has nowhere near even a majority that that suddenly, because they happen to gain the most votes out of the 47, suddenly becomes governor of California. And when what would not be weird for this state is to have somebody elected to a position like that that could do some, uh, I was going to say significant, maybe better put, continued significant damage to the state of California. And I just have to wonder, in going through this process, and again, full disclosure, when Gray Davis was recalled, I fully stood behind that. Um, I was eager to see Tom McClintock fill the void. That didn't happen, regretfully. I think that Arnold Schwarzenegger had some great ideas but was uh, wholly unprepared to, to meet the challenge of dealing with a state that has a majority hold um, in legislature by Democrats. But I, I just have to wonder if there's... You know, from a from a long term potential damage to democracy, in your opinion, does the ability to so easily recall a governor uh, does that in the long run help or hinder us? I mean, what happened to the idea that you vote for the guy that you get, uh, win, lose, or draw? And the good news is, in four years' time, you get to turn them out, and if they make it to eight, you're done with them regardless. Well, um, it raises so many delicious political scientific 
kind of issues. You said you made reference to it being easy to recall the governor. It's hardly easy. Look at the number of signatures that you needed and look at the how infrequently um, those who favor a recall for a sitting governor, look how infrequently they succeed in getting a recall on the ballot. It's hardly an easy thing to do. I would prefer it to be really easy to effect a recall, but here is the reason. If, just imagine, ask yourself, if recall were easy, how quick would Newsom have been to impose draconian lockdowns, the profoundly autocratic style of governance that he did, angering so many people? Ask yourself, Craig, and I invite the audience to do the same thing, whether or not they agree with me that the ease of recall would have a tempering effect on the extreme activities of a governor such as Newsom and other autocratic governors did. I say it would have a salutary effect. After all, Craig, Samuel Johnson in 1723 reminded us all that nothing focuses the mind like a good hanging. <laughs> and I would pass, I would, he knew what he was talking about, Samuel Johnson did in 1723, um, and I would say nothing would focus a governor's mind like a good recall. Thank you, Professor Johnson, for that wise observation a couple of hundred years ago, and I would say I would think that would have a tempering effect. I think Newsom would have behaved profoundly differently um, in, and would have angered far fewer people if it were easier to do a recall. And I allow myself to fantasize that how nice it would be to have that always there affecting the decisions a governor makes. It's like the, the, if you favor democracy, it, it, it threatens the president or the governor with the adverse effects of democracy, angering the people uh, if they misbehave or appear to misbehave in the eyes of the people. So if you favor small-D democracy, you got to love recalls. So, so ultimately, and we can pick this up after the break, ultimately you see this as a means, an effective means, of, of holding leadership's feet to the fire. If they recognize that there is a, a greater degree of vulnerability, uh, or maybe better put, a greater degree of accountability directly to the people, that you don't even have to wait for the next four years. And as we've learned down through history, the electorate tends to have um, a, a pretty uh, pretty poor memory that you can cr- cr- commit a, a pretty significant um, uh, act um, against the people and if you do it early enough in your presidency or your governorship or whatever the position might be, the likelihood is that by the time you're up for reelection, folks will probably have forgotten it or you've been able to talk yourself out of it and kind of dull or blunt the pain uh, of, of whatever your, your uh, act of, of incompetency might have been. 
And so the notion of an easy recall means holding their feet to the fire much easier and an increased degree of accountability, recognizing that if you do run afoul and upset the majority, the majority can quite easily take you to task and take your job away. We're going to come back with more of our conversation. Bob Zadek has been gracious enough to spend some time with us today. We're talking not just about the election and uh, recall that's underway. By the way, we've got uh, just about uh, two hours and 22 minutes to go before the polls close. So if you haven't gotten to a polling place yet, I want to urge you to do so. Polls in California close at 8 o'clock, and uh, we'll have returns for you later on this evening or next week or next month, as the case may be, since the Secretary of State will have up to 38 days to certify the election. And with the um, overwhelming percentage of voters, no doubt, voting by mail, the time it's going to take to uh, count up all those ballots will be a while. So I think the one word of caution I would say this early on is don't assume because you don't go to bed tonight knowing whether he stays or goes that there's something that is illegal that has just taken place. It may not be illegal. It might just be the big machine turning very slow. All right, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back to more of our dialogue with lawyer and the host of the Bob Zadek Show, bobzadek.com, for more information, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. We'll get back to more of our dialogue as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation. Syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek is with us this afternoon. We are talking about the California recall. Well underway and uh, just about a couple of hours here, around two hours and 20 minutes to go before polls close across the state of California. Just as a reminder, get out there and vote. Important that your voice be heard for democracy to work. Bob, you brought up an excellent point before the break, and that is the sense that um, the, if, if, if leadership, and by leadership I mean politicians, um, had a greater sense of, of fear and trepidation of the electorate, uh, their might, behavior might be a little bit different. But down through the decades, as we've seen the manipulation through things like gerrymandering and an electorate with very, uh, very poor memory, they, they seem to oftentimes end up getting away with just about whatever they want. And you're suggesting that, no, making, making a recall easier probably is the best thing for democracy, then that raises the question, well, why, why stop with the governor? I, I've said since the beginning of this current recall, I, I think it's a great idea with one thing. We're, we're, we're recalling uh, only one person, and the list should be 121, given some of the shenanigans that uh, have been pulled by the California state legislature in recent years. Is there any kind of a mechanism whereby Californians could, could not only recall the governor, but just about any elected position? Well, um, it's a fascinating question you ask, and I'm going to really get the intellectual juices flowing in our audience with the following, um, by pointing out the following. In, uh, In Washington, we have members of the House who are elected for two year terms. It has been correctly observed. People who are in the House of Representatives always have an election right around the corner. Two years goes by fast, and they are always running for office. More about that in a moment. 
Uh, the Senate, on the other hand, has a six-year term. Elections are far in the future. What does that mean? It means a senator can take the long view. A senator can do something unpopular for four out of the six years that he's in office, or she's in office. It's only in the last two that they start to feel the presence of an election and better be more plugged into what the polls dictate. Now, in the House, you're always running for office, which means it it behaves like a mob, and I mean that not with any judgment. It means that you have to, oh, when you're running, always running for office as an elected official, you have to pay attention to the current, um, what people are talking about today. In other words, the impulses of the majority, because they're going to be voting in no time, and you better respond. Uh, and therefore, the House of Representatives is more reactive to what the public at large is thinking, rightly or wrongly. Now, which model do you prefer for a governor? Do you want a governor who is elected only for a two-year term and therefore is constantly running for re-election? And what that means is everything they do better make 51% of the people happy, even if they think it's the wrong governmental decision. Or do you want a president, or a governor, let's say, who has a six-year term, who less frequently runs for office, can do things that he or she thinks is in the best interest of the state, even though most of the public doesn't agree with them. Both models have something going for them, and both models have something wrong with them. If you say, I want a governor who is going to always be responsive to 51% of the people, according to the polls. That's what I want. That's like the same crowd who favors that would favor recall. It means the governor is always running for re-election, and which means he's not going to piss anybody off because election is right around the corner. So it is a legitimate question, and people uh, of... People who are reasonable can disagree on whether you favor the people, the voters, small d democracy, and make the governor always be responsive to the people, even if he thinks or she thinks it's the wrong decision. Or do you want somebody to be a thoughtful, wise person sitting up there in the shiny city on the hill up there in Sacramento doing what he or she thinks is best, even if it's going to anger the public? Pick what model you like, and that will tell you how you feel about recall. It's, a, in my opinion, a very helpful way to work through in your own mind what your view of government ought to be. Bob Zadek with us tonight. We are talking not just the recall, but uh, once we come back from a timeout, I want to pivot to another hot topic. Recall certainly on the top of mind of all of us on this uh, Tuesday election day. But another issue, we touched on this earlier in tonight's show, that is vaccine mandates. Just how constitutional are they, really? We'll get to that discussion 
With us, best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. Check out his program, get information about guests, podcasts, other resources available at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. The program, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m., one of the best thoughtful programs featuring thought leaders, newsmakers, folks that really bring some insights into the backstory of news that the big talking heads are just afraid to touch. Catch his program Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer. A timeout back with more of our conversation with Bob Zadek as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as you've heard in recent days, the president announced mandates for companies that have more than 100 employees. Mandates for vaccines. Hundreds of health workers, though, are pushing back. San Diego County, for example, many of the employees there, health care workers, are seeking religious exemptions to the COVID-19 vaccine, as Eddie McCubbin reports. According to the San Diego Union-Tribune, Sharp Healthcare has received more than 700 religious exemption requests, while UC San Diego Health has received more than 600, and Scripps Health has received more than 400. Those seeking the religious exemption must explain how mandatory vaccinations violate a specific religious belief. Those with the religious exemption would not be subject to termination or other disciplinary action for not getting the vaccine. I'm Eddie McCoven, NBC News Radio. Certainly facing uh, different, difficult and challenging times with the impact of COVID. But let's turn to the constitutionality of all this. And uh, toward that degree, Bob Zadek, uh, your, your thoughts. Clearly, the president is going to be facing a uphill battle uh, as folks push back on the so-called mandate. Some have argued this is better left up to the states. And I'm not even sure at a federal level how they think they're going to create the kind of mechanism to not only dispense all of this, but to police all of this. Well, let me let me refine uh, the issue a little bit, if I may, Craig. Please. Um, more precisely, uh, President Biden did not mandate vaccination. Um, nobody seriously believes government has the power to violate the sanctity one has over one's own body. But what Biden did is to require employers with over 100 employees, with lots of exceptions, to either have employees get vaccinated or be tested once a week. So Biden didn't mandate anybody get a vaccination. Indeed, the government is not involved directly in telling an employee what to do. The government is telling the employer what rules of employment to have. It seems like it's a minor difference, and it sure feels the same if you're the employee. As far as you're concerned, you have to get a vaccine, and it's Biden's forcing you. But he's not. You can be tested once a week, and then you don't have to get a vaccine. But the question is, is that lawful? Can uh, under what grant of power in the Constitution, can a president tell an employer, uh, 
rules like requiring employees to get vaccinated or be tested once a week. Most, but not all people, say there is a dearth of grant of authority in the Constitution to give the president that power. But let's remember, our president considers the Constitution to be kind of an inconvenience. And the president, if you recall, when the president um, asked CDC to maintain the ban on evictions, the president said, well, I know that almost everybody says it's unconstitutional to do that, but by the time the courts get around, we will have accomplished what we wanted anyway, so no big deal. My opinion, that was pretty gosh darn close to being an impeachable offense. After all, he's supposed to uh, protect, honor, and defend the Constitution, and he's He's thumbing his nose at the Constitution. But that's for another day and another show, perhaps. So the president did not require vaccination. There was, on the constitutional issue, there is one sort of relevant Supreme Court case. It's known in the trade as the Jacobson case decided in Massachusetts. Um, in that case, um, the uh, state of Massachusetts, as I recall, in, uh, during a smallpox epidemic, if I'm correct on the disease, it imposed a fine of $5, which was more valuable then than it is now, a fine of $5 if you didn't get vaccinated. And uh, that fine of $5 was held to be constitutional at the time many people there's a there's a profound disagreement on whether that that reflects the supreme court's endorsement of compelling vaccination so in reality there's no clear precedent one way or the other uh, so we don't really know about the constitutionality most people suspect that the government cannot mandate vaccination now, of course, school children cannot attend school unless they are vaccinated for about seven or eight diseases. But once again, that's not mandatory vaccination. That's um, mandatory vaccination only if you want to attend a public school. And that issue, um, everybody assume that issue is not uh, is not because of the nature of those diseases that nobody really has questioned whether or not requiring young children to be vaccinated before they enter the school system. And nobody really questions the constitutionality of that. And the question is whether that uh, precedent uh, can be extended to adults. Uh, most people believe that it cannot, but there is not a definitive question. But certainly in public opinion, um, the argument for requiring adults to get vaccinated is kind of flimsy. And as you may have heard, because it did a lot of debate in public, people say, hold it. If you maintain that uh, vaccinate, once you're vaccinated, you're protected against disease, then why require masks? Because who are you protecting? You're not protecting the vaccinated because they can't get the disease you have just told us. So doesn't that make the requirement that people wear masks to be utterly hypocritical, kind of an interesting conversation, and it ties some people up in knots trying to defend the two principles, but that's more abusing, I think, than constitutional. Well, what of the idea of this kind of uh, overreaching burden? Uh, setting constitutional questions aside for a moment, 
and 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 clarifying to your point that it really shifts then the burden on business so that if you have 100 or employees or more you need to make sure that they are vaccinated or you need to make sure that they are getting their their proper testing it would seem to me that suddenly turning the the local hr department um, into the 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 medical supervisor uh, would be an extreme burden on any business 100 employees or not Craig you and I have had this conversation somewhat like this conversation more than once we um I was invited on your show once and we had a chat about censorship Facebook and censorship and whether Facebook can censor after all what about free speech well the constitution says government um simplifying cannot censor speech, but private business can do what it wants, and that's kind of uh, the principle. But when you get to a point when Facebook is worried about antitrust violations and this and that, and losing, uh, being accused of being a monopoly and being broken up, Facebook worries about the government taking adverse action against them. And therefore, in order to curry favor with the government who has a lot of power, uh, the government coaxes Facebook to do the kind of censorship that government can't do. Well, and there comes a time that Facebook becomes more of an instrumentality of the government in its behavior than behaving like a private actor. Well, once the government forces people indirectly to kind of get a vaccination, has the has the government in effect commandeered business to do what government is not allowed to do and that's a delicious question to still there's no definitive case on that issue except it is clear the government cannot commandeer and compel businesses to do what the government cannot do directly and that's an issue that is fascinating to watch because who knows it might just end up before the supreme court and craig isn't it fun that here we are 240 odd years after the constitution was written and we still have fascinating hard constitutional questions so this law after 240 years this piece of parchment is the meaning of which is still being debated. It's what makes shows like yours so interesting to listen to and to participate in. And certainly important in terms of the dialogue, the national dialogue, because you know, we're, we're talking about working out this process of self-governance. And, uh, you know, it is, um, it's not a perfect process, to be sure. Uh, but we have been left with some wonderful tools, wonderful guidelines, and provided that we're sensitive to kind of keeping it within the rails, um, it can be a means by which we can all not only survive, but hopefully thrive. Many important questions of this sort, of course, taken up every Sunday on Bob's 8X program. We encourage you to make it a point to tune in this Sunday. Again, you can catch the program locally here in the Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer, though Bob is syndicated in many major metro, English, Craig. Bob is syndicated in many major, <laughs> boy, just stuck right there, many major metropolitan regions 
in the U.S., and you can get more information about where that is to invite friends and relatives elsewhere to tune in by checking out Bob's informative website at bobzadek.com. That's easy for me to say, bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Bob, as always, we appreciate the time, the insights, and the education. We didn't get to ask him about AOC showing up to the Met Gala. $30,000 ahead to opening night at the Met, and she wears a tax the rich dress. Boy, talk about the wrong audience. <laughs> well, we'll leave that for another time. Speaking of time, let's get a look at traffic. <laughs> 